Hi everyone. Before we begin, I wanted to say a big thank you for being here today and listening to the show. If you'd like to support Behind the Smile, you can do so by following this podcast and leaving a five-star review. Every rating and review helps this podcast to grow, meaning more people can discover these stories and find hope along their own journey. If you'd like to check out this week's Behind the Smile photo, head to ashbutters.com where you'll find all of the episode show notes. And with that, let's kick off this week's episode. Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today is a very special episode because as of tomorrow, which will be the 8th of August 2023, Behind the Smile will be one year old. So to celebrate this milestone, I wanted to invite someone into the studio who is very special to me and somebody whom you've all met before. If you've gone back to the earlier episodes, this was my first ever guest on the show, episode two. And with that, I'd love to welcome Dad. Hello. Hi, how are you? Great to be here. I'm well. Welcome back to Behind the Smile. It's great to be back here later. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? Like, where did that year go? Yeah, I know. I suppose that's the life of the entrepreneur is that we get focused on something and time just becomes irrelevant in some ways and we, you know, chasing our dream and getting on with it. And Yeah, it's so different, isn't it, from living that existence where for me it often felt like Groundhog Day, even though I really enjoyed working for these Fortune 500 companies and and having a purpose in a way, it wasn't my purpose, it was somebody else's purpose. And so it still really felt like work, you know, it was that nine to five grind and I wasn't particularly inspired a lot of the time, whereas, yeah, life is looking really different today and I'm just really excited for this conversation. To do things a little bit differently, I've gone back to the Ask Me Anything format of the show. I love these episodes because I like that it enables our audience to get to know whoever's speaking a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I always find that I can be my most vulnerable in these yeah. kinds of episodes and yeah. share what's going on for me currently as well and likewise for my guests. So thanks for helping me tackle these questions today. We did put it out to the audience to write in and ask questions and we've had some really brilliant questions come through. But to kick things off today, yep. I believe you've got a question for me. I do and it's all about your recent journey and and I suppose – to get it, condense it down, it's really about what's been the biggest lesson you've learned when you conceived behind the smile and then had, a, had the courage to hit the go button and leap mm. away from that corporate career and become an entrepreneur. Tell mm. me about that. Mm, yeah. Wow. I guess like we just said, it's it, it seems quite surreal to be sitting here 12 months on from the launch of that first episode, which was my recovery story. And that 
it really did feel like a coming out in a way to be able to uh-huh. share my story in such a vulnerable way where there was really nowhere to hide. It was just myself and a microphone mm. sharing my story. I had come out publicly on social media about six months earlier. Mm-hmm. So when I turned two years sobriety, I I put that on my social media and that okay. was the first time I'd sort of let people know what was going on. Yes. Other than that, it had really just been my friends and my family. So it was almost like an extension of that, but it was also it, – it felt like a really brave step because right. in that moment I was really putting out to the world, this is me, this is what I stand for and this is my mission and my purpose. Yeah. And that mission and that purpose hasn't wavered right. since the beginning and that is to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. So required. So necessary. I think so. And the more conversations I have, the more I realise there is just such a need for change. There In is. some areas, I, I get a lot of hope. Meeting different people and having really robust conversations, I see that a lot is happening. But at the same time, so much still needs to be done. Yes, a lot of work ahead. Yeah, but to answer your question, what have I learnt? What haven't I learned? I think one of the biggest lessons that I've taken away from the last 12 months and stepping into this new world of entrepreneurship is no one else is going to do it for you. Nope. And I think, I, you know, I was pondering, as you do on any sort of milestone anniversary, I was pondering the last 12 months and the blood, sweat and tears that have gone into creating Behind the Smile mm. and then the extension of my business from that And it's really interesting because had I known what was coming, I don't even know that I would have done it. Yeah, and that's not unusual. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, as we walk through the valley of darkness, seeking to get through that dark, tough, challenging piece of Mm. entrepreneurship, you know, it will be tough. It will be brutally tough. Mm. Um, But... We've got to keep trudging, you know. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. I think that the resilience that I have built in my recovery mm-hmm. and my sobriety has been the ground in which I've then been able to build this business. The foundation. I think, and it's an interesting debate, I don't know whether going to a private school, I can see all of the benefits to that, absolutely. Yes. All of the friendships, the connections as you get older, that like it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful experience, and I I wouldn't have changed that. But I wonder how much of my personality got used to things being a little bit easier than maybe they were for somebody else going through the education system differently. And what I mean by that is, I know that I've always been a hard worker, mm-hmm. but I've also I've managed to have to be in environments where people supported me along the way. And so going back to that point I had of in the last 12 months, really learning that nobody was coming to save me. Right. Nobody was going to do this for me. Yes. And so I had to learn everything. Like talk about wearing hats. Yes. You know, even just from the production of the podcast, you know, the audio editing, the recording, the publishing, the copywriting. And you are a perfectionist. Yes, that's true. (laughs) I've probably done it. Well, I know that I've done it uh, to to the absolute best of my ability. And some. And some, which has probably created some unneeded pressure at times. But that's, that's again, where my passion lies. And and I try to 
let go of the perfectionism where I can because I actually think, you know, it's, again, interesting, another lesson is the less perfect I am, the more I find it resonates with people, yeah. which has been really interesting to you, see. You're aware of that, mm. you know, as a, we can say perfectionism is, is in a way a shortcoming because it oh, stops absolutely. you from being great. Yeah. Or from continually moving and it can lead to procrastination and various other Analysis paralysis. Things. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I actually heard Steve Jobs, uh, a tape of Steve Jobs, the, the Apple founder, just last week and he blew me away. He said, if you are not passionate, if, you're not, if you are not sincerely passionate about your venture, stop, get mm. out of there because mm. you will fail. Mm. It's, it, the passion is, is the thing that, that keeps us going. Absolutely. And I think for me, stepping into this new realm, I no longer work a nine to five and I love that. But I, in another way, I work a 24 seven. You do. (laughs) That's the life of the entrepreneur. You you never switch off, do you? You never switch off. And I have to be really conscious and it's been really beneficial for me to sit down and do exercises around what are my values and making uh-huh. sure that I don't let the things that are important that I value, including my recovery, including my family. Yes. You know, they're really big values for me and quality time with my loved ones, making yeah. sure that because work can so easily take over for me yes. and consume my mind, even I can be present with my partner but still be thinking yes. about work, yes. to really pull back put the phone away, be present, that's definitely a practice that I'm still mastering as well. And have you got something in this studio or around the house that reminds you of being present or helps you to get present? I think for me, my meditation practice and my morning routine Uh really enables me to start the day with the intention of being present. Right. Absolutely. As the day starts to get busier, I can be pulled away from the present moment. But I do try to, through that practice of meditation and mindfulness, come back as many times throughout the day as I can. I know some people will set an alarm on their phone. Yes. uh, And it's the same when you're in early recovery. You know, set a reminder at the top of every hour to say the serenity prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just brings you back to that present moment. I don't know whether you've noticed, but at home I have a set of scales on the sideboard. No. And they're an antique set of scales. And they just, they sit there to remind me about the balance required. Mm. You know, sometimes you've got to work hard and sometimes you've got to focus and sometimes, but on the uh, on the other side, you've got to be balanced. Mm. You've got to try and find a, a balance. Well, because otherwise then what's it all for? Like, you don't, well, yeah. Want, yeah, you don't want to work yourself to death. Well, you'll end up like your old man who got to the top and was lonely, you know, mm. all the toys, all the money, all the, you know, um, um, credits and... Uh, you know, more just was not enough. Mm. You know, I had a hole in my soul. So um, that finally led me to recovery. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've got to be – I was only talking to a, a newcomer yesterday who's got a very busy mind. Mm. And, you know, I was just saying pause, pause, pause. Don't, 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 don't debate that mind of yours. Mm. Just let the river flow, mm. you know. So now – Having been in recovery, you first got sober in 2010. 2010. So it's been 13 years now that you've been in the rooms of recovery. Yes. And you've 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 lost it all, and we talk about that in episode two, your yes. story. You've you've gained it all. You've lost it all. You're in the process of rebuilding. Yeah. How do you how do you stay right sized, and how do you fill that hole in your soul today? Oh, I think filling the hole in the soul is. Is, is pretty straightforward. You know, recovery comes first. 
my tribe is, you know, important to me. My my fellow members who we catch up with socially and we do meetings together and, and they, we keep with each other honest. Um, so, um, sorry, go back. What was the question? Well, the question was hole in the soul. How do you feel that? But then also how do you stay right-sized through all of that? Yeah, well, I think the program, you know, is designed to, to keep us right-sized as long as we work it, you know, reasonably well. We're not, you know. We not, are not saints. We're not, we're not saints <laughs> and we're not perfect. But we have a, you know, I, I said on radio last week, you know, we have a Melways, but for you younger listeners, we have a Google Maps, you know, and, and it's a compass and, and it keeps us sort of aware of true north. Mm. And then as we get into the program, we get through early recovery, we come to understand what's important to us, you know, about learning to understand, think, well, what's my motive here? Like I'm doing something that I can rationalise, but what's actually my motive? And all of these great questions that, you know, the journey from the head to the heart is mm-hmm. the longest journey you'll ever make mm-hmm. or take. And But through that journey, we, we get given... A wonderful set of tools. Mm. You know, I think a classic is, you know, I've never been a big road rager, but I observe road raging with interest. Oh, I think you gave it a nudge. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the day. Someone takes, you know, 10, two metres or three metres of your space and and your immediate response is, I want to kill them. Mm. Well, what's, what's actually going on there? Yeah. You know, who hurt you? So... These days, if if somebody cuts in, my first go to is pause, mm. and 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 reflect on that person's behaviour as what's going on for them right now. Of course, you know, mm. rather than satisfy my own ego and give them a good spray and a, and a good blast, and 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 the truth is, I get to work 0.5 of a second later. Mm. I get to my destination 0.5. You know, so that's not the issue. Yeah. But I think it's nice to reflect on what is actually going on. Mm. Someone takes two metres of your space and you want to rage, mm. which we think is also an addiction, mm. rage. Mm. So I think the, the great part about recovery is the tools we get given. You know, you can imagine a tradesman walking on, say a, say, say a, say a bricklayer walking onto a building site with no tools trying to lay bricks. I mean, it, it just... It, it it's going to be awfully messy. It'd be messy <laughs> and, and you wouldn't get the job done. So we get given these wonderful tools like prayer, meditation, gratitude, pausing, service, and they're amazing gifts, you know, that in our addiction we were too selfish to be aware of or, or do much with. But, you know, now we've got a set of, a set of tools. And mm. um, I actually had a young sponsee years ago who was a tradesman and he, he said, I keep forgetting. And I said, well, if you walked on the site without your tools, you'd look like an idiot and you wouldn't get much done. Why don't you just make a list of those tools and pop them in your pocket? You know, mm. pausing, prayer, gratitude, mm. meditation, being present, ten fingers, ten gratitudes, etc. And um, try and, you know, but it, it takes practice, mm. like everything. Mm. You know, it takes, it takes practice. Yeah, I love what you said about that journey from the head to the heart and I think that's what the last three and a half years have been for me on my own recovery journey and what I'm working with my clients on now is this idea of alcohol or whatever substance or process it is for you because this is this is so broad it could be it could be a relationship it could be sex it could be food it could be gambling shopping shopping gossip 
Exactly Rachel. right. Any of those things Codependency. could be taking you out of your reality. Yes. And and most likely because the reality that you currently have is fucking uncomfortable. You don't want to be in it, right? Well, I think it may take you out of your reality or it may in fact be your reality. Mm, you know? mm, exactly. And I, and I think it, if, if codependency or, or sex or drugs or gambling or shopping or whatever is your reality, then you are stuck. Mm, and you can't connect with self. This is the biggest thing that I'm now realising is until we foster or cultivate this deep connection with self, we're going to be out there lost, confused, it's going to feel chaotic, all of that stuff that leads us back to the thing that is Mm. numbing us out from that reality. Because we're creatures of habit. Mm. You know, a couple of interesting things. Years and years and years ago, you may remember that Dad was a sprinter. (laughs) Yes. And my coach would nag me and nag me and nag about my arm action. And I thought my arm action was perfect until I saw it on camera. Oh, yeah. And I went, oh, my God. So the point I'm trying to make is that we are creatures of habit and we can rationalise, justify and normalise all of our behaviours mm. as being somewhat normal. Mm. When in fact, when we take a step back and, and, and say do a step four or a step five or a step eight or nine, oh my God, is that really who I am? Mm. And it's quite a shock. It can be quite hard though to step away, to, to, to be able to hover and observe yes. to even realise that you're in denial because I think that's, you know, step one, we admit that we're powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable but what comes before step one and it's, you know, they don't call it the disease of denial for nothing. Yes, well, what comes before that is a, is, is in effect for me and many others a life-threatening event. Mm. The, the, the desperation of being so miserable, so unhappy, so uh, close to the edge mm. of taking my own life mm. that... That if, that's what it took to finally go, hang on, mm. this is pretty bad, mm. you know. And then I was blessed to meet David and Mark and other these other beautiful human beings that simply told me their story and I could see how well they were. Mm. And so it was paint by colours but it, was, it wasn't overly complicated. Just do what I did, yeah. you know, and I did it and guess what, you know, it worked. Yeah, I love the saying, it's a simple program for complicated people. Exactly, <laughs> yes, Yeah. yes. Circling back, the question that you originally asked me was, you know, what's my experience been like thus far uh-huh. with, with Behind the Smile and stepping into the world of entrepreneurship? The other thing that I have, have noticed that I actually struggled with it first and I'm, I'm at peace with it now but I'd love to know your own personal experience with it is understanding that you have to be your own champion. Sure. And what I mean by that is people that you thought might be your number one. Yes. Then they're just not. And, and for whatever reason and, and at first I remember I was really hurt you know, yeah. because I was like, why, why aren't you guys supporting me or, or, or what, you know, what were the things that I, in quotation marks, yeah. needed? Maybe you held up a mirror to them. Maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, and I, and I know for me, like through doing the work, like one of the things I need to be really vigilant around is my expectations of others. Sure. But like I said, it's taken me a moment to, to let go of that. And now I'm, I, I have, I have complete peace around it. Good. But I think in the beginning, yeah, it, it was actually, it was, it was hurtful because whilst I didn't have a huge amount of outward backlash, 
sometimes people saying nothing was just as painful. Yeah, the subtle things. Yeah. Yeah, that we – and as we say in recovery, having too high an expectation, you know, invariably leads to a resentment. Mm. And we drink on resentments yeah. typically. And, and, and I suppose as we venture forth in a new, you know, mission like this, mm. we have expectations and, and we have expectations of friends and family and, um, of, and the universe. And sometimes it takes a little longer and requires some perseverance. Mm. Did you ever have that? Like did you have people that you thought would be in your corner that just, you know, sat back silently? Uh, I can't. I had a few knockers. Mm-hmm. People said, you know, one, one guy said to me, what are you doing running your own business? You're not that smart. <laughs> and I thought, I'll show fuck you. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was very blessed that um, I tried working in a large company once. Um, they didn't like me and I didn't like them. <laughs> they wrote memos, which I never understood. And uh, so, so I do feel somewhat blessed that, I actually didn't have a choice to go back to the corporate world, so I had to make it as an entrepreneur. Mm. So I feel very fortunate in that regard that I actually I burnt the boat. If you know, if you're familiar with that saying. Well, you t- you actually taught me that saying. We we went out for a coffee recently. I remember, and yes. I, just before I made a big decision to pivot uh, into a whole new world, and you taught me this lesson. Can you share for our audience what you taught me? To burn the boat. Yeah, well, in the early days, the the um, you know the pioneers that would would travel by boat to the new frontier and discover a new area, a new land, or whatever, and then claim it. They would they would use the timber off the boat to build themselves accommodation. So there was no going back. <laughs> I mean, that's commitment. <laughs> totally. You know, that's commitment. Yeah. And we can't be half committed because totally. we will fail. Yeah, you know, it goes back to the jobs quote in a way, isn't it? Yes. Like it comes back to that passion and that drive. But absolutely, like if you don't throw it all in, you're not going to have the drive. Similar to your recovery, not until do you get the gift of desperation. That's right. Do you have the drive to actually make it work? That's right. And half measures avail us nothing. And that goes for entrepreneurship and it goes for studying and it goes for, you know, oh, some people can study half-assed, I suppose, if they're bright enough. But in terms of in terms of fulfilling your dream and chasing your dream, you better be passionate mm. and you better be committed and be prepared to get the knocks and get the criticisms and get the the challenges that might come your way. And they invariably will because, you know, the world's not about a popularity contest. It's it's about it's other things. Um, but you've got to keep going. Mm. It's got to keep going. Mm. And when when the knockers and the critics are noisy, keep going. I mean, I remember my time in football, in some ways, and maybe I'm a bit of a sicko, but in some ways I enjoyed the criticism. Mm. In some ways, you know. I enjoyed the challenge of the debate, the discussion, and the counterintuitiveness of being able to say to someone who was having a crack, be it a media person or a member, tell me more. Tell me what you're thinking. Where'd that come from? You know, and it's funny, and we learn this in recovery as well, about counterintuitive behaviour. Um, you know, if somebody has a crack at you, you can crack back. But, you know, nil or draw or, mm. uh, you know, not really a positive outcome. But if you can be slightly counterintuitive and interested in, in where that person's coming from. Yeah, be curious. Then, yeah, be curious. Uh, then I think, um, you know, both parties are better off. But... Um, that could be a good segue. I've also got a question for you before we dive into 
questions from the audience. So sure. what I wanted to know, Dad, was what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned outside of getting sober? What's been the hardest thing to overcome? The hardest thing to overcome outside of actual getting sober? Um Step five was pretty challenging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's part of getting sober. So for the audience members yeah. who don't know what a step five is, it's... Um, Spilling your guts. Yeah, we'll, Sh- we'll leave it there. <laughs> sharing your garbage. Yeah. Um, what's been the most difficult thing about getting sober other than the actual recovery program? What's been the hardest thing that you've had to face in okay. your life? Okay, okay. So... As a teenager and uh, and an adult, an adult um, you know, business success came to me relatively easily, and I didn't have the emotional maturity, not really, to 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 cope with all that. So I blew it, and that's fine. Um, I get a second chance. I think the greatest challenge is actually learning to get to know who you really are. So I used alcohol and sex and gambling and shopping and you name it to numb, you know. And once I pushed all of those things aside, then I stood at in the mirror staring at my raw self. What were you numbing? Oh, look, I think, you know, life's – being human's challenging, being – you know, I, 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 trauma is relative. Mm. I remember when I was five, my little sister Mary contracted cancer. She died 18 months later as I was nearing seven and, and, and I witnessed firsthand this uh, horrible feeling that I couldn't label at seven in my chest. I later learnt it was grief. Mm. I also witnessed my mother, my beautiful beautiful mother break down mm. and my incredible saintly father just try to trudge through it. So, you know, I decided at age seven, I'm not going to feel that ever again, mm-hmm. this grief. Mm-hmm. So, 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 you know, that worked for me at seven, but it's not very effective at 57 or 47 to be an avoid. I, I became an avoidant. Mm. You know, I, I, I decided that, that facing that emotional pain was, was too bloody hard and I'm going to avoid it. And I avoided it either by being an avoidant or by numbing myself through sex, drugs, alcohol, gambling, shopping, you name it, gossip, mm. raging, you name it, I did it. And so the hardest thing I think about, to answer your question, uh, when we when we do get sober and we get quite raw you know because we, we get to have a look at the the sort of um the mess the, the mess in our heart the mess in our souls you know and and we have to seek to address that and i suppose that rebuild is is it was challenging because we are creatures of habit not only are we creatures of habit we are creatures of justifying our habits mm. We can rationalise our behaviour. Mm. And so it was really getting to that point where, okay, I got sober, that's step one, getting sober. Step two is we turn around and face this tidal wave called life <laughs> and our own 
character flaws and the things we we did as a child that might have been effective as a child, but they're not very effective as an adult. And it was only over the weekend I, I was thinking that as a parent I can still be occasionally avoidant, <laughs> you know, not there. Because I was one of ten and Christmas time was painful. Birthdays were horrible, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. Mary dying was, oh, don't even, it was horrible. Mm. So as you know, little kids, we're just doing our best, but we're trying to develop these coping strategies. Mm. And sometimes those coping strategies aren't very effective. Mm. Like a tantrum in the supermarket when you're three might work, but when you're 43, <laughs> you know, less so. It's not a great look. Not a great look. But it happens. It sort of yeah. describes road rage. Yeah. And I think the the biggest challenge is surrounding yourself with good friends who mean well and, and love you for who you are and then being able to accept that that coping strategy is not very effective, it's not very honest, it's not very real, it's not very authentic, mm. it's not very heartfelt and having the courage to dip your toe in, mm. you know. I'd love to unpack what you just shared there a little bit more about having that moment over the weekend where you were looking at your parenting yes and your presence in in my life and I'm assuming in my brother's yep. life as well yep what, what comes up for you when you think about that well i think what comes up is that i grew up in a family of 10 with my little sister dying and my elder sister getting pregnant at 16 it was a shit fight. You know, Dad marched off to work every morning. I don't know how he fed us, quite frankly. Um, and so we developed these sort of coping strategies. And one of my coping strategies was to get the hell out of there. Like I was, I had jobs at age seven and eight. I'd mm. go and collect golf balls at, at seven and eight. Mm. I'd disappear for six to ten hours mm. and sell them and then get on a tram and go to the footy. And, and you know, so I was very, very independent because immersing myself in that family unit was 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 confusing and and hectic, so I sort of yeah I I, I became a bit of an avoidant and and I've had as you know a couple of wives and a couple of girlfriends and and they've all very respectfully pointed out to me that mm. I can I can do avoidance. Mm, yeah. What's ironic though is I won't do it in the boardroom. That's really – it's more of an intimate relationship. Where that – the yeah, the, the, the fear of really truly being seen yes. is like, I'm, I'm out of here maybe. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you share all of that. And, I you know, I've at times over the years thought about our relationship, you know, what I wanted it to look like on paper and what's the dream versus what's the reality versus where we've come from. Mm-hmm. Like I'm really good – Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. where I am today, you know, it makes me feel a bit emotional talking about this. Do I sometimes wish we were closer? I probably crave more frequency. Yes. Yeah, I get because, that. Because to be fair, unless I call you a lot of the time, we don't talk. Right. You know, like, yeah. but, but I think we average probably a call a week. Yes. Is that my on paper dream? Probably not. I think, you know, maybe two, three times a week is probably where I would be the sweet spot for me. But in saying that, the quality of the oh, time, yes. that whenever we talk, whether yes. it's for 30 seconds, three minutes or half an hour, the quality of the conversation is so – we just go deep straight away. And, and I remember that. <laughs> um, I remember that famous story when you came to me at 16. 
Oh, no. God. <laughs> Can I share that one? Yeah, go for it. And uh, <laughs> so my daughter comes to me and she says, Daddy, which was always a, a sign that this was a heavy-duty conversation. So oh, we, Lord, I know what's coming here. So we sat down and she said, now I've been seeing my boyfriend now for over 12 months and I think it's time I got on contraception and <laughs> my rational mind said, oh, that's right, you added to that and we don't want any accidents, do we, Daddy? <laughs> oh, God. And my rational mind went straight to, well, you're making a lot of sense, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, for God's sake, I was sexual, sexually active at, at 16 and, and I really get upset with parents who did certain things at a younger age and then point their finger at the kids and tell them to not experience life because it's yeah. it's bullshit. But mm. um, anyway, and I, I remember saying to her, now, have you spoken to your mother about this? And she said, oh, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, your job. <laughs> so we made an appointment to see the doctor. and but We've always I, had that close, open relationship, which is nice. And I value that. But I think it's gotten to a whole new level since oh, no doubt. I got sober. Oh, no doubt. You know, obviously you were a decade before me, but um, – my ability to to let go of any because a lot of the time like that story is a perfect example I came to you with a bit of manipulation a bit of wanting something some help yeah you know whereas now like that's all fallen away yes and and the the closeness that we share today is is it's hard to describe but it does it definitely feels more authentic more authentic real heartfelt yeah so I think where we are now I I don't lose any sleep over the relationship the way it looks. I, I, I love our relationship. As a result of the work and where we both are in our lives, we get that, that very deep quality connection. Yeah, and I think, it, look, I sense that there's quality. There's a much greater quality mm. and, and honesty and, uh, and uh, co-travellers, mm. you know, working, walking together through this path and having mm. – conver- like we had a great conversation yesterday morning at a mm. meeting. Mm. Mm. You know, you were a little bit um, – upset and uh, we talked about it and it was very rational and yeah. uh, but that's quality yeah you know that's quality I know yeah so it's but, it, but the more sober you get the more you realize how your upbringing was a major influence mm. you know and and I think overlaying that is is is, is we need to understand that trauma is relative mm. so Mary dying was extremely traumatic for me. Mm. And I had to develop skills and, and, and coping mechanisms that worked for me at age seven mm. that most certainly did not do not work for me at age 64, which I am now. And what's really interesting is when you develop those coping mechanisms that are ineffective, what also happens is there's the transference of trauma to the next generation. Absolutely. And where I see that a lot of the time is you just shared how Christmas was really difficult for oh, you. Oh, very difficult. Birthdays were really yes. difficult for you. I was catching up with my sister-in-law when I got home last week from being away. Went straight over there to see her and my niece, your granddaughter. Me. And we were talking about Christmas. And the minute we talk about Christmas, and I, I know that this happens for my brother as well, is it's like a... Yuck. Oh, like there's a tensing yes. and, and a stress reaction. Because it was somewhat traumatic. Yeah. yeah. And I probably projected that. And I'm, I'm, and I'm pretty sure your mother did too. Mm, mm. You know, we projected that. Um, and it's interesting how with so much recovery in our family now, like it's still an area for growth. I still oh, don't think we've gotten there. Oh, yeah. I think you'll yeah. always find another area yeah. for growth. And um, But I, I think... What recovery gives us is the opportunity to look at those scenarios 
um, objectively, honestly, have a chat to our sponsor or our co-tribe members mm. and get some perspective around it. And and that's the gift of recovery because if we have a program that keeps us on, tr- you know, hopefully on true north, but there are, you know, many, many people who are just robotic. They're on the treadmill of life mm. and they never get to, to sort of have a, a, an objective look at some of those behaviours. They justify them. And, uh, and that's sad mm. because you're not growing. And if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm. Yeah. Hey, let's jump into one of the listener questions. Sure. Now, this question has come from somebody who would like to remain anonymous. Ms. Anonymous. Ms. or Mr. Anonymous. Or Mr. Anonymous. Or maybe neither. Anyway. In this world. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. The question is, now I think that either of us could answer this, so maybe I'll pitch it to you first and then I might jump in and add my experience as well. The question is, okay. what has your mental health journey been like over the years and what are your thoughts on taking medication in recovery? Okay, so when I got sober um, and turned around and faced life without all of the sex, drugs and and, and gambling, etc., like that, um, I had to work out with the help of professionals because um, it was the first time I felt for real, these feelings. So I had to work out with some friends and some professionals, you, you know, and there were bouts of anxiety and there were bouts – and I'd always cover that up with booze mm. – um, bouts of anxiety, tie a little bit of depression um, – and I think also certain behaviours that what I would describe as less effective that were fav- behaviours that I used, you know, during my my drinking and using years, but they were less effective in. Can you give me an example? Um, yeah, just um, maybe. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the workplace, I had a greater need to be right. You know, I had a greater need to 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 be the smartest person in the room and win the argument, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. But in recovery, I've become much more curious, and it's not about winning the argument. It's about it's about you know moving closer toward the destination, whatever that might be, and learning to be a little bit more humble. Mm. Um, so there's an example of uh, humility and vulnerability. I imagine that must be challenging in a boardroom situation where there, it's almost that dog-eat-dog-eat. Dog and, and, and if you were working with somebody in a business and it's say it's their business and they're really hungry yeah. and they're wanting to do anything and everything and then you're coming in with a very almost, and I don't mean this in a negative, a negative way, but passive approach. Well, what I call uh, the servant leader ah, approach. Yeah. Well, you don't need to be right. Mm. You've just got to be on that explorative exploratory journey together. I Uh, imagine that must be hard for some people to resonate with. um, Yeah, but I think life is is hard for some people to resonate with. Yeah, of course. So, um, but you do have to be selective, you know, um, about who you work with Mm. because um, one of the great benefits of recovery and and to, to, to answer the final part of the question before I go on, I have great faith in our medical practitioners. I'm blessed to ha- personally have a wonderful psychiatrist. She knows and understands me. And at, there have been times during that period where she has prescribed 
you know, anti-anxieties, antidepressants, whatever. And I, I say to, you know, people who are in doubt, if I broke my leg and I went to the doctor and he handed me some crutches, I wouldn't argue. Mm. I'd use these crutches because it's like sometimes we need a crutch. Mm. Sometimes we need some help. Mm. And as long as it's you, 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 you take them as prescribed and, you, and they're prescribed by a professional and you've been honest with that professional to yeah. begin with, then I have no issue with it whatsoever. What I have an issue with is, is people who are not qualified having an opinion on it. Mm. Mm. No, I agree with that. Why have I got something in the back of my mind flashing? Yeah. And it's it's a memory I can't put my finger on. Was there a period of time where you were potentially diagnosed with bipolar? I was diagnosed with bipolar type 1, so the more, more the manic variety, mm-hmm. which you may have seen the mania from time to time. Yeah. Um, gee whiz, that would have been 15 years ago. Oh, wow. So Whilst I was is, still drinking. so Okay, that's why I couldn't quite land the timing of it. Yeah, and I think for a professional to diagnose you properly whilst you are still drinking and using and mucking around mm. is very difficult because, well, because you hear that time and time again, don't you? People get in the room sober. And, and this was actually my experience. So I was medicated for anxiety. I was taking Lexapro, which is yep. an antidepressant, but commonly prescribed for anxiety. Yes, and I, because I was experiencing debilitating panic attacks sure, where, you know, I'd end up in hospital. And I was taking the Lexapro. I was still drinking on it. It did – it was effective in calming the panic attacks, but I was still experiencing anxiety. And then after I'd been sober for 12 months, yeah, with the guidance of a doctor, I weaned myself off. There you go. I do not experience anxiety yeah. today. But you replaced the medication with other – Mm. effective tools, tools mm. such as, you know, such as service, which is good for the soul, such as, um, you know, meditation, such as being present. You know, yeah, I'm also not putting a poison in and my no body every poisons. day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Funny that. Yeah. Mm. Okay, yeah. So I, I agree though. I think it's at the end of the day, anybody who's not a medical professional should not be giving Don't have advice. A view. Yeah. yeah, leave it to the pros. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All yeah. right. Let's roll on to the next question that we've got here. Interesting. Okay. Now, either of us could probably answer this one as well. So I will roll into the question. Was there a big drug-taking culture at your high school? Did all your friends do drugs too? Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. All my friends did because I was drawn like a magnet to those friends. But the other kids, I doubt it. So Mm. when I I don't know if you know this, but when I was... This was the 70s for you, right? Yeah. When I was 15, I was playing football over at St Kilda. So I had a bit of a commitment. I had a commitment. I had to get to training. But my three mates were shooting heroin. Wow. Yeah, at 15. You know, they were shooting heroin, 15, 16. And so I remember they were shooting and, and one of them said, do you want to try it? And my mind sort of went, oh, you know, maybe. Oh, I looked at the time. I said, oh, I've got to get to training. You know, so I was very blessed to have had um, another discipline that I had to attend to. to mm. You know, so drugs, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, hallucinating tablets, mandrakes they were called, uh, heroin, marijuana, alcohol, um, 
were pretty common in the 70s, mm. pretty pretty common to, mm. to quite common. But I think it's easy to forget that it's only your cohort. Yeah, exactly right. Because that's who we're drawn to. Like attracts like. Totally, yeah. yeah. What's your experience? I had a similar experience in that I was definitely drawn to people who liked to drink and party the way I did. Yes. It was very much just on the weekends, uh, but cocaine was really prevalent. Actually, I remember, I don't know if you remember this, we were living in Park Street, so I must have been around year seven. Yeah, I was going to say 12, 13. Yeah, yeah. and I, you were in your dressing room upstairs and I came in to ask you something and out of the blue, you said, are you doing cocaine? Did I? <laughs> Now, I was still a year away from trying any kind of serious drug at that point, and I remember being so... Just for the record, I'm looking at the camera (laughs) in shock. Yeah, and I was in shock. Was I asking you in in, an inquisitive manner? No, I think it was a little more accusatory. Like, I was pretty... I was, you know, at that age I'd started drinking. Yes. And I was pretty ratty. (sighs) I can't be 100% sure, but it, it felt accusatory at the time. And right. I remember thinking to myself, that's so weird. Yes. Now, fast forward a year later, I had by that time yeah. tried speed and, you know, and then soon after that, getting to my point was cocaine was kind of like the main party drug. Yes, despite, of the day. Yeah, yeah, despite it being expensive, it's what most of us did on the weekends. But it was always kind of a weekend thing and then everyone would go back to school and the The main difference was that as we finished school and everybody started either, you know, going on gap years or going to university, uh-huh. they stopped or they or they or they they, they maintained that that binge sort of weekend partying lifestyle. I turned it up a gear, right? And I went fantastic. I can do this every day now. Okay, mm. yeah, and that's the mind of an addict. Yeah, exactly right. That peculiar yeah. mental twist. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of parents, not a lot, but enough parents coming to me saying, I'm concerned about my 16-year-old or 18-year-old's usage. And nine times out of ten, they'll grow out of it. Yeah. They'll get a job. They'll get some responsibility. They'll they'll fall in love, whatever, and, you know. And they're still recreational users. And by that, I mean occasionally, mm. you know, at a party and fine, if that's what you can do. Yeah, exactly right. Not everyone's going to. I can't. No, I certainly can't. You can't. <laughs> We can't. We cannot. That's a good segue into the next question. And this one's definitely for you. Mm-hmm. It says, um, as a parent, what advice would you give to others raising children in regards to addiction awareness? Well, that's a really good question. And I think the first thing, and I think something I think I did reasonably well as a parent is talk about stuff. I was always very comfortable talking about stuff Mm. and I think the worst thing a parent can do is to point the finger and wag the finger and make life a threat because kids being kids they're going to try stuff Mm. and peer group pressure is powerful Mm. so I think you know I mean I, I have friends that I know have used and yet they wag their finger at their kids it's just bullshit Mm. you know I mean Again, communicate, invest time in communicating, you know, the risks, the dangers, um, 
the lack of, you know, sort of authoritarian approach to it. Mm. Because if you're a teenager in this modern world and you think you're going to navigate life without coming into, you know, crossing the path of something, whether it be gambling, whether it be, you know, inappropriate sex, whether it be drugs, alcohol, shopping, um, that's just unrealistic. Mm. So I think you can have honest conversations, but not not conversations that threaten. <laughs> I'm, I'm smiling and nodding as we have this because there's a second part to this question, oh, which is... You didn't tell me about that. For me, <laughs> directed <laughs> to me. And it is growing up in an alcoholic home... What would you have wanted your parents to have done differently? Now, it's really interesting that your interpretation of events was that we had these really big open conversations where there was no reprimand. Oh. Because my response to that question would be, I wish that I'd been able to take more to my parents without oh, fear. Oh, that's fascinating. Of being... yeah. In trouble because if you remember, from the very first night I tried alcohol, yes, at, I was grounded at Michael's party at that infamous Christmas party. Yes, how long were you grounded for? I think I was grounded for a few weeks that time around. Who grounded you, mother? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, not long after that, like the, the biggest whack I got was six months. I got a six-month grounding for Four. getting pissed at Thomas oh. Street Park with my girlfriends. Oh. We stole a bottle of vodka. Where was I? I won't mention. <laughs> and there's the, there's the point, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I think that perhaps, you know, and, and that being the time where if we go back, we're talking about the year 2000 to 2005. That was sort Which of. hectic. That was the height of your alcoholism and probably where you'd checked out. Well, I was also the involved yeah. in the football industry yeah. at that stage yeah. and that consumed me, mm. unfortunately. Um, and I didn't have the maturity to balance off, again, the balance of being mm. a parent and mm. a member of the community and, and also carry that role. So, yeah, I was absent a lot. And what I see now is that, particularly from mum, was that it was fear. Oh, for sure. You know, it was – number one, never in either of your lives would you have sat down and had that kind of conversation with your parents. So it's like, well, you don't know what you don't know. Yes. But then in addition to that, I think particularly around drugs but also alcohol, there was just so much fear that it was – I, I, I can only make up that the thought pattern was, well, we've got to stop this yeah. and so we're just going to lock her up, oh. which, you know, yeah. had the complete opposite effect on me where I just thought, you know, and I've, I've – That's why God made windows. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, do you remember when we went to the football one night and I, I ran do. away from home? I do. And then you guys found me a few hours later. I do. And pulled me by my hair out of the wardrobe that I was hiding in at Jack White's house. Oh, my God. And I got dragged into the car and grounded for another three months. You know, little girl. <laughs> yeah. Look, I think parenting is, um, is really... Like we don't get given a manual, we don't get given mm. much training. We we often repeat the things that um, that, that we experienced, and um, so yeah. I mean, I'm surprised there's not more in the public domain about about basic parenting. 
It's interesting, isn't it? I remember when we went through South Pacific Private as a family and I thought to myself at the time, this should be mandatory. Yes, absolutely. For anybody, it's almost like the moment you fall pregnant and you receive that happy news. Yes, start learning. Yeah. Yeah. There should like a government-funded free program based off Pia Melody's model that takes you through. Be very powerful. How to parent. But I think a lot of people... What I'm noticing is a lot of people in recovery. We sort of get if, if you're going to hang around recovery long enough, you sort of get forced to face the truth about you and your shortcomings mm, and etc. Mm. And I think this is one of the sad things about um, a lot of people is that they just they're on the treadmill and they just convince themselves of what they're they never they never have an audit, mm. they're never audited, you know, mm. and um, so they can't learn, they can't grow, they can't. It's you know, and, and we're, we're, we're the masters at justifying our own behaviour. Yeah. You know, human beings. Yeah. We're, we're masterful at it. Yeah. And therefore we're not really learning and growing. Um, and often if somebody shines a light on your stuff, you cut, like, the, the, the response is to turn away and either cut them out of your life right. or avoid. Rebut or yeah, avoid. Yeah, exactly right. But yeah. Your defences go up. Yes, and there's that again. It's because it's all underpinned by fear, isn't it? Yes, yes. You know, to be yes. able to fear just, and shame. Mm, yeah. Well, we were chatting about shame, weren't we, just before we started recording? Yeah, yeah. Shame's a big one, you know, because we sort of know in our soul. Unless you're a sociopathic narcissist, mm. we do know in our soul when we're not fair, not reasonable, dishonest. That's right and wrong. We do know. Yeah, that internal barometer. Yeah. However, when you're in addiction. Well, you can justify it. I believe that 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 barometer is it's drowning. It, you it's know, numb. It, it, yeah, it's, it's not working. It's so hard to connect to it. Yeah, yeah, not working. Whereas today, at three and a half years sober, I can't tell a lie. To say no, lie that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even a white lie. The words can't come out. <laughs> no, it's yeah, so. Or you know, it's yeah. Oh, I heard a very funny story the other day. It was obviously said in, a, in an anonymous meeting, but um, yeah, just that internal barometer is um, yeah. hilarious. It's always there. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, we're very blessed to have found it. I mean, we, you know, if we, had we been born, had we be been born a hundred years ago, we didn't didn't have these tools oh, no, that we have crazy. now, and uh, you know, we're lucky. We're blessed. Um, mm. You know, this life's got a lot to offer. Yeah. It certainly does. Hey, Dad. This has been awesome. Thanks so much for no coming worries. in. Thank you. I've loved it. Yeah. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thanks for being here with me today. Oh, look, an absolute pleasure and well done on the work you're doing because not just in your own personal journey as an entrepreneur, but as a champion for destigmatizing, it's so important that we can have these conversations and you know, I think it was only a couple of weeks ago you sent me a note from a young lady that listened to our first uh, potty that we did a year ago mm. and it was so emotional, mm. her mm. gratitude. Um, so if we're making a difference, we're blessed. Yeah. We're lucky. Yeah. So thank you. I feel the same way. Thanks, yeah. Dad. No